Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for uh, your sovereignty over all your creation. We thank you for your great love for us in sending Christ to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you for your word and the opportunity that we have right now to gather around your word and to study uh, the things that you have revealed about yourself and about your great plan of redemption written across all of history. Uh, we pray, Lord, for this body of Christ, Hope Bible Church, as we gather to worship you today. We pray for our nation. We pray also for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray that justice would be done and that peace would then reign in Israel. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be with us today as we open your word and would guide us into all truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So here we are in part 16 of our study of the book of Revelation. So we, uh, we're going to be studying, we're going to be starting into chapter 7 today, and so uh, we've been through these first six chapters, and we've seen um, the first six seals opened, and now there's a little, um, there's a, uh, a set of visions, two visions in chapter 7, that come between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. And so we're going to study the first half of chapter 7 today, uh, the last half of chapter 7 next week, and I will not be with us, with you, uh, next week. Uh, uh, Larry uh, has um, graciously offered to step up and teach again next week. Uh, I will be at the celebration of the 60th anniversary of my parents, uh, so I'll be in Akron, Ohio. Um, so I will be missing you, uh, but I will be glad to be with my family and celebrating my, my parents' 60th wedding anniversary next week. So today we're going to talk about some survivors of the wrath of God. Uh, this vision, this set of two visions, uh, this first vision here that comes after the sixth seal but before the seventh seal. We're going to talk about wrath restrained. So there's been lots of wrath poured out and there's going to be lots more wrath poured out, especially in the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments. But here we see uh, a little interlude between the sixth and seventh seal and the wrath is restrained for a time. And there are some saints that are sealed and we're going to talk about who these saints are and we're going to, they're going to be very specifically identified uh, as Israelites here in the first half of chapter 7. These 144,000 we're going to talk about. Uh, but before we dive into that, let's go back and take a look at what we did last week. Uh, we did the second half of chapter 6. We talked about the fifth and the sixth seals that were broken by the Lamb um, last week. And so the fifth seal, uh, it's kind of a midpoint in the tribulation. We've got the um, the tribulation is a seven-year period. It's divided into two halves, a three-and-a-half-year uh, tribulation, sometimes referred to the, as the beginning of birth pangs. And then there's the great tribulation, three-and-a-half years that we're about to get into. Um, and the, the fifth and sixth seals kind of uh, straddle uh, the, the first half and, and begin into the second half of this tribulation period. Um, now, depending on which commentators you read, uh, there is some disagreement about that. Uh, but I think that it, it seems to, to fit all of the, uh, the rest of the corpus of Scripture that this is kind of a, marks a transition period between the first half and the second half. So we have all these martyrs uh, that were killed during all the judgments. Um, and there's been, a f in the first four seals, there was a false peace and a war and a famine and disease. And there have been, uh, during that period, also great persecution, hostility towards Christ and his followers. And now we've got this uh, set of uh, martyrs that we're going to take a look at, that we took a look at last week. Uh, and they were killed for specific reasons. The reasons are given here in Scripture as because of the Word of God and because of the testimony that they maintained. And so it was because they were faithful followers of Christ that they were martyred. Um, 
And so this seal depicts God's wrath and judgment on the evil and ungodly, not on his children. So uh, they're not killed because of God's wrath. They're killed because of the persecution of the ungodly. Um, so they address, uh, of course, they address God as the Lord, holy and true, uh, as they cry out in a loud voice. And uh, holy, God, two attributes of God that are uh, on display here are his holiness. Uh, be, and, and because of his holiness, he must judge sin. And because he is true, he must be faithful to his word and keep his promises. Um, so as we saw last week, they're not telling God what to do. They're asking him a question because they have a holy desire to see uh, Satan and Antichrist destroyed and defeated and the wicked judged. Um, that's their that's their desire, and so that's the uh, the heart cry that they're uh, they're making here. Um, and so we have uh, each of them given they're, they're given two things. They're first given a robe, a white robe, and they're also given this word of comfort that they should rest a little while longer. Um, and a little while longer, as we can see from uh, the rest of Scripture, this is Daniel's 90th week, we're about halfway through it, and so a little while longer seems to be about three and a half more years. So these are uh, the saints that have been martyred in the first half of this tribulation, and there's about three and a half more years, and, there, and as the, we learned last time, there are going to be more martyrs that are added in this last three and a half years. Um, so they ha they're supposed to wait a little longer, and they're waiting a little bit longer until the exact number of martyrs has come in. Um, and God knows what that, that n those numbers are. Um, there is an exposition. There are, there are many references to the day of the Lord in the Old and the New Testament. There's a detailed description in 1 Thessalonians 5, which we went through last time. Uh, Matthew's, uh, Jesus also talks about uh, the day of the Lord in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Um, and so then we have the sixth seal. Uh, so that was the fifth seal. Then we have the sixth seal. Uh, and it talks about this arrival of the day of the Lord. Uh, the great day of his wrath um, in verse 17. Um, and so we've passed the midpoint of the tribulation. Uh, the sixth seal is opened and the final three and a half year great tribulation begins. Uh, the sixth seal uh, references massive uh, natural disasters. Um, natural disasters caused by God. A great earthquake, the sun becomes black, the whole moon is like blood, the stars fall from the sky. And we talked about this word that's used for stars there. It can mean any heavenly body other than the sun and the moon, and most likely here referring to meteor, uh, meteors falling down and hitting the earth. Um, and so there's also a description that's very difficult to understand. God's, uh, John's using uh, the best words that he can to describe the indescribable. Um, but one of those is the sky appearing to split apart like a scroll. Uh, we don't know what that means. I don't know what that means anyway. Um, but it's a part of this unveiling of God's judgment. Um, and it ends with every mountain and island being moved out of their place, so there's uh, massive geological shifting going along with the earthquake and the uh, disasters in the, in the heavens. Um, and so this judgment falls on um, the entire unbelieving world. Uh, it, it, nobody can escape it. Uh, there's a list of um, these um, people in political power, military power, the, the rich, and nobody can escape. And uh, not only that, but every slave and free. So uh, it's not just the wealthy and influential, but everybody uh, that this judgment falls on. Um, and then there's a reaction to the judgments that are, that are coming. Um, the unbelievers, unbelieving world... Uh, uh, reacts in terror, uh, not in repentance, but in panic. Uh, they try to flee to the caves in the mountains that are shaking. Um, and they pray, of course, not to God, but to nature. They pray to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them. Um, and so this is just a, a reaction of, of the unbelieving world in panic, but not in repentance. Um, and of course, the fear is very specifically described as fear of the wrath 
of the Lamb. Uh, so it's Christ who's, who's here um, the, the instrument or the agent of judgment here, and, and people are starting to realize that. So uh, there's this uh, uniform realization that, hey, these, these things are not normal, and these things are the wrath of God. There's a, there's a unif- u- there seems to have become a universal acknowledgement that these things are from God. Uh, so these day of the Lord horrors precede the coming of the Lord uh, and even anticipate what's cut to come which is worse. And so uh, remember chap- chapter 7 is, uh, is going to be, when we get into it today, kind of this uh, uh, vision that's a... Uh, uh, a parenthesis or, or a, a, a short t- period of time between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. And the seventh seal contains the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. And so that's what we did last time. And remember last time, uh, the, the last verse of chapter 6 and ends with a question. Who is able to stand? And chapter 7 is actually going to answer that question. Who is able to stand? Um, so let's dive into chapter 7. So if you'll open your Bibles to chapter 7, we're going to find out who is able to stand. So uh, chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Uh, open up your Bible or your device and follow along, please. So uh, this is the word of the Lord. Revelation 7, chapter one, uh, verse 1. After this... I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth, or on the sea, or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice, to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. So that's the vision that John sees here. And so just as a little prelude uh, to this section of scripture, this is a quote from uh, MacArthur's commentary. The world will refuse to acknowledge that the disasters of the first five seals are God's judgment, despite the warnings from believers that they are. But the events of the sixth seal will be so horrific that all will be forced to acknowledge them as the judgment of God. In their terror, amid their futile attempts to hide from the terrible presence of God the Father and the Lamb, people will cry out, The great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? That question that closed verse 6. Chapter 7 forms a parenthetical section between the 6th and the 7th seals to answer that question, introducing two groups who will survive the fury of divine judgment. The first, those described in verses 1 to 8, are the Jewish evangelists who will be preserved on earth. They will survive the holocaust of divine wrath unleashed by the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments. God will also protect them from the murderous efforts of Antichrist and his henchmen to wipe out believers in the true God. Having survived the wars, famine, unprecedented natural disasters, disease, rampant unchecked sinfulness, and savage persecution of the tribulation, they will enter the millennial kingdom alive. That God will preserve his people in the time of judgment is a familiar theme in scripture. When God destroyed the world in the flood, he preserved Noah and his family. When he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he preserved Lot and his daughters. When he destroyed Jericho, he preserved Rahab and her household. And when he destroyed Egypt, he preserved the nation of Israel. 
The tribulation is revealed to be a time of unparalleled judgment, disaster, and death, but it will also be for many the, the time of salvation. Some of those redeemed out of the tribulation have already been mentioned in connection with the fifth seal in chapter 6. They were martyrs killed because of their faithfulness to the Word of God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Many believers, however, will not die, but will survive to populate the millennial kingdom. Jesus taught that truth in his description of the sheep and goat judgment in Matthew 25. The goats, the unsaved, will be cast into hell. But the sheep, the saved, Jesus will say, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Believers who are alive at the Lord's second coming will live on in his earthly kingdom. And so we see that described here in chapter 7. So, uh, and just to circle back uh, to what I talked about at the very beginning, there are, in fact, good and godly people who disagree on the interpretation of prophecy here in the book of Revelation. And so uh, I went through the four major uh, schemes of interpretation of, uh, of Revelation at the beginning. And when it comes to this 144,000, uh, this is how each of those uh, schemes of interpretation uh, view the 144,000. The historicists view the 144,000 as a symbolic number that represents the entire church. The preterists uh, view the 144,000 to be maybe the Jewish Christians who escaped the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The futurists, that's us, uh, view the 144,000 as Jewish Christians in the last days. And the idealist school views the 144,000 as the true spiritual Israel, the church on earth. And so there's disagreement. Um, and uh, as I go through, I'm going to give you the reasons why we here at Hope Bible Church believe in this futurist view uh, from our interpretation of Scripture. Uh, but I don't want you to miss the fact that there are those who you may encounter who disagree about the interpretation of these uh, prophecies. Um, now, there's only one true interpretation of these prophecies. And so somebody is right and somebody is wrong. Um, yes. And so, I mean, and we, I have reasons why I've studied these things and believe in a particular set of interpretations. But uh, just be aware. Um, and uh, my counsel to you would be to um, let your conversation be seasoned with grace should you encounter somebody who disagrees on these uh, prophecies. Um, so, um, I mean, I, I, just as personal experience, I have people in my own family who I know are good and godly people who disagree on the book of Revelation. So that's my, that's my reality at Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, so, so, there you have it. Uh, that's right, yes. <laughs> Yeah. Won't they be su won't they be surprised? There they go. Won't they be surprised? So, all right. So uh, let's go here uh, verse by verse. Um, so verse one. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And so we have this phrase after this. Uh, in some places in Revelation, it's after these things. This one's, uh, the this part is singular. Sometimes the this is uh, plural. And in English, we, we say after these things or after this. It's usually followed by the verb adon, to see. Uh, it's used several times in Revelation to introduce a new vision. So this is a new vision. So the, the vision of the sixth seal is done. And so this introduced a new vision, uh, beginning of chapter 7. After this, uh, John sees a new vision. Uh, we see that in chapter 4 and chapter 7. Uh, actually, we see it twice in chapter 7. We see it in chapter 15 and chapter 18 again. Uh, the use of after this in this passage signifies the sixth seal has ended and he's got a new vision. Uh, it also indicates the new vision de depicts events that come after. So it's a, a time sequence uh, as well. After this, that's a time stamp. Uh, so this, the, the, the sixth seal ended and there's some time 
that passes before the seventh seal here. Uh, and it shifts from judgment on the ungodly to special protection for the godly. That's what we see here in chapter 7. and answers this question, who, who is able to stand? Well, who is able to stand? Okay, here we have it. Verse 7, this is a description of two groups who are able to stand and why they're able to stand. Uh, and so this vision unfolds, uh, John, as, and it starts with John seeing four angels. Um, and angels, of course, are frequently associated in Scripture with God's judgment. They execute God's judgment. They're, they're God's messengers, and they're messengers in a couple of different senses, one of which is his judgment, messengers of his judgment. Uh, we see it in many places here in Revelation and also in the Old Testament and in the other places in the New Testament. So, for example, 2 Samuel chapter 24, 2 Kings chapter 19, Psalm 78, and then in the New Testament, Matthew 13, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we see these the angels as harbingers of God's judgment, and that's what we see here. Uh, and these angels, particular angels, are given power over the elements of nature. Uh, it's God has absolute authority over his, his creation. He made it, um, and he has given that authority, in this case, to four of his angels. They are standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the winds of the earth. Uh, we see language like that in other places in the Old and New Testament, Jeremiah 49 in the Old Testament, and in Jesus' Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Uh, and so, um, unsophisticated skeptics have used this four corners of the earth to say that, uh, hey, look at these uh, ignorant rubes who wrote this, uh, these ignorant shepherds who wrote this ridiculous Bible. Um, they think that the, wor the world is uh, square and flat. Uh, but that's not what we have here. We have uh, a word picture um, that refers to the whole earth by designated the four primary points of the compass. The primary points of the compass, north, south, east, and west, that's a, a word picture for the whole, the whole earth. Um, that's, what, that's all this is. And that's, what, that's the kind of word picture that you have in many uh, secular books and secular literature, and nobody thinks that that means that they think that the earth is square and flat. Uh, it's a ridiculous um, uh, uh, criticism of the Bible. Um, so these powerful angels um, ensure that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Uh, so the winds are associated in Scripture with God's judgment in other places, in Jeremiah and Daniel and Hosea. And that's what it means here. This is restraining the future judgments that are coming, in particular the trumpet judgments. So we'll see the seventh seal contains the seventh seven trumpets, and those seven trumpet judgments are what's in view here with the holding back of the winds. It's a holding back. The sixth seal is done, but the seventh seal is not yet. And this is a word picture of the fact that uh, there is being, uh, there's a delay in this judgment. The, there's a delay in the, the seven trumpet judgments which are to come as part of that seventh seal. Um, and so they're being held back. And that's what we see. Uh, so no wind, no breeze, no movement of clouds in the sky. Everything will be deadly still. This is an incredible power, demonstration of God's power through his angels. Uh, but there's also this picture, the symbolism of holding back judgment. That's what it really it means here. Uh, holding back is a, uh, it's a very strong Greek word, krateo. Uh, uh, suggests that the winds are struggling to break free from their uh, restraint. In other words, the angels have to actively hold back these winds because these winds are ready. Uh, this judgment is ready to come and they're actively holding it back. It's a word of struggle there, that, that Greek word krateo. Um, so the angelic restraining of the wind also symbolizes, as I mentioned, the withholding of these plagues associated with these imminent trumpet judgments, especially uh, those first four starting in chapter 8, which we're going to get to next time. Yes, Jim. Um, do you physically mean the wind as well as the judgment? I think so. Uh, but remember, it's a vision. Uh, and so um, John is seeing things. He's describing what he's seeing in a vision. So what he sees in the vision is angels holding back winds. Um, and so that's in John's vision. 
Um, and the vision then has meaning, uh, a spiritual meaning as well. There's the silence, there's this holding back of the wind so it's perfectly still on earth, there's a silence in heaven, and then the seventh seal is broken and uh, judgment is unleashed, uh, beginning with these uh, trumpets that we'll see. Um, and so, yes, we have this kind of pause here in verse 7. Silence in heaven, we'll see. Here we've got totally still with the winds held back. And the, the, the meaning behind that is the judgments are coming. Uh, um, and we'll see that in verse 8. Uh, so the next phase of God's wrath is restrained for the moment. Uh, the winds of judgment are gathering force and soon to be released, but there's a reason for this pause. And we'll see that reason here in a moment, uh, both the, the, as it plays out for the rest of chapter, chapter 7. Uh, so verse 2, and I saw another angel. So there's four angels holding back the winds, but then there's a fifth angel. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. So there's a fifth angel. Um, and so there's a reason for the temporary restraining of God's judgment. It becomes clear here with this other angel that talks to the four angels who are holding back the winds. Um, some have identified this angel as Christ, but that is unlikely. Uh, this word Alos, another angel, means another in the same sequence or of the same kind. So there's four angels and there's another of the same kind of thing. Uh, that's what that Greek word alos means. Um, and so Christ is not another thing like four angels. And so it wouldn't fit uh, for this to be Christ. Uh, Christ did appear in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, but he is not in essence of the nature of angels. Um, and so that wouldn't fit this, this sequence here. Uh, and in addition, in verse 3, as we'll see, the angel, this fifth angel uses the word we when he's talking to the other four angels, the pronoun we. And so he's identifying himself as like those other four angels. And Christ wouldn't do that. Um, John saw the angel ascending from the rising of the sun. What does that mean? Um, it's a poetic way of saying from the east. Where does the sun rise? sun rises in the east. Um, and so that's the point of the compass where the sun rises. And so think about where John is as he's seeing this vision. He's on Patmos. Uh, it's, it's off the coast of Turkey. And so if you're on Patmos and you look to the east, which way are you looking? What are you looking toward? Israel. Right? You're looking towards Israel. So this angel is coming up from the east. He's coming up from Israel, Jerusalem. Uh, that's where he's coming from. That's where John sees this angel coming from. Um, so, uh, and of course, that's where God's promised salvation comes through Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, that all happened in, in Jerusalem. Jesus was born there in Israel. He lived his whole life in Israel. The crucifixion was in Jerusalem. Um, the resurrection was in Jerusalem. Uh, the ascension was in Israel. All those events were in the east as from, God's, from John's perspective where he is on Patmos. And so that's where this angel comes from with the seal um, of the living God. So um, the angel has with him this seal. The, the seal of the living God. Um, now this is different from the other seals. So there's seven seals on the uh, the scroll, but this is this is a different seal. This is the seal of the living God. That Greek word translated seal here uh, often referred to the signet ring of a king. What a king would use uh, as the seal of his authority. Kings or other officials would have such rings to stamp into wax on a document or other items, affirming their authenticity and guaranteeing their security. So a seal thus denoted ownership and protection. And so we're going to see that uh, as we get into the rest of this chapter 7. Uh, this seal... Donate, uh, designates God's ownership and protection over a specific group of people. So in contrast to the seals of earthly rulers, this seal borne by the angel is the seal of the living God. Um, that's a frequent identification for 
for God uh, in the Bible, the living God in both the Old and New Testament. It's here in Revelation, chapter 4 and chapter 10 and chapter 15, but also many times throughout Scripture in Deuteronomy and Joshua, 1 Samuel, 2 Kings, and all the way through to the New Testament in Matthew and Romans and 2 Corinthians and 1 Timothy and Hebrews. This description of the living God. God is the living God, the one and true living God, uh, to distinguish him from the dead idols that were worshipped by unbelievers. Those were not living gods uh, that the unbelievers worshipped. And so God is the one living God as opposed to all those dead gods. And so that's what is in picture here. Uh, the seal of the living God as opposed to all those dead idols. Uh, any questions so far? Everybody with me? Good. All right. Um, and so in the Old Testament, God marked Israel uh, in, in different ways, in different circumstances. So uh, he marked Israel with blood on their doorpost uh, for, the, uh, for the exodus. He marked Rahab with a scarlet cord to keep her and those with her from being killed. But the, the illustration that is most parallel to this case here in Revelation is in Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9, there's, there's going to be, God's going to visit a um, a judgment on Israel and kill many in, uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, a judgment on Jerusalem. But before that judgment, um, uh, God says this, the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations which are being committed in its midst. In other words, those who are true worshipers of God, he, he, he says, go through and put a mark on their foreheads. But to the others, he said, to, in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark. And so this is in Ezekiel chapter 9, uh, a judgment that God made in the Old Testament on people in Jerusalem that were wicked, uh, that, were, that were not worshiping the one true God. But before he did that, he put a mark on the forehead. He had an angel go through and put a mark on the forehead of those who were true worshipers of his so that when the angel came through to kill those uh, who God had judged, he would spare those with a mark on the forehead. So we see that in Ezekiel chapter 9, and it's exactly what's happening here in Revelation. Uh, so God has done this before in a particular judgment that he had on Jerusalem in Ezekiel chapter 9. And so similarly, these servants of God whom the angel will mark with God's seal will be protected from and preserved through the judgments yet to come. And so the, all these judgments that are going to come with the trumpet and bowl judgments, these particular people are going to be protected uh, because they have the seal of the living God on them. Just like had happened in this historical judgment of God's in Ezekiel chapter 9. So he cries out with this loud voice, and he tells these other four angels um, that, that were granted to do harm. So th these angels that are going to blow these trumpets have been granted authority to do harm. But this angel says in a loud voice, do not do it yet. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Uh, and so he's, this is urgent, authoritative, uh, this fifth angel cries out in a loud voice and he tells these other four angels, not yet. Y yes, you're going to unleash this judgment, these judgments, uh, when you sound these trumpets, but not yet. Um, the harm or damage, damaging devastation to come on the earth and the sea and the trees will occur when the four angels release their judgments, uh, symbolized by the wind, but they're restraining them. They've been told to restrain them, and the angel says, not yet, and the reason you're restraining is because we need to seal these particular people. Uh, that judgment and the trumpet and bowl judgments to follow had to wait until the angels had sealed the bondservants of God on their foreheads. And so this word bondservant, translated bondservant here in many English translations, um, it's actually the Greek word doulos. I'm sure you've heard this before. And the Greek word doulos, what does it mean? It means slave. And so it really says the slaves of God. 
Now, the reason why many modern English translations don't use the word slave is because it's got lots of emotional baggage with it uh, because of modern slavery, especially in America. Um, and of course, we can we can think through this logically. So, um, a, a person that's made in the image of God, a person that's a creation, a, cre a created uh, person, uh, would certainly have no authority to own another creation that's made in the image of God. Uh, and so, for a human being to own another human being, that's not right. But how about the the one that actually created that person that that one has the right to actually own a human being so god and god alone has the right to own these creations that he made but i would certainly not have that right. I didn't make you, so I, I certainly shouldn't have any, I mean, it's, it's an abomination for me to say I own you. I didn't make you. But it's not an abomination, you see this, for God to own some person that he actually made. Um, and so it is perfectly fine for God to have human slaves. It's, and, and, but it's not perfectly fine for another human being to have human slaves. Um, but this, because of the history that we have um, of of actually doing that, people people have people um, accumulating the right to own other people. Um, that the word slave has such emotional baggage that that many English translations will use this word bondservant. Uh, but the Greek word is slave. Um, that's what it is. Um, and so, sealed the slaves of God on, on their forehead, um, that they are referred to bondservants indicated they're already redeemed. So they already are his bondservants. And so these are the redeemed that we're, we're talking about. These are actual followers of Christ uh, that are referenced here. Uh, after the sealing is complete, the judgments can begin from which those sealed will be exempt. Uh, that's what we're waiting for here. That's what they're holding back these winds for. That's why this pause between the sixth seal and the seventh seal uh, to, to, to seal with the, um, um, the seal of the living God these particular people uh, that will be protected uh, during the coming judgment. So then we have uh, a description of who these people are. Uh, so who are these people that are going to be sealed? First John, here's the number of them. And the number is a specific number, 144,000. And they are specific people. They're from the tribes of the sons of Israel. Uh, that's the description here. Uh, Jewish believers and evangelists are the first fruits of Israel, which as a nation will be redeemed before Christ returns. And so we have descriptions in other places in the Bible, Zechariah chapter 12 um, and Romans chapter 11, that Israel will be redeemed. Um, well, this 144,000 is the first fruits of that, and they're particular evangelists that will be active during the Great Tribulation. We'll see that play out. Uh, in the rest of Revelation. These are probably not all the Jewish believers, but a particular subset, a unique group selected to proclaim the gospel. We'll see them doing that in Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 14. So this is a specific group of Jewish believers. Um, and there's a couple of reasons to believe that, and I'll, I'll talk about those in a minute. Um, but despite this kind of plain language that seems pretty clear, um, many persist in identifying these, this group as the church. Not as Israel, but as the church. Um, and this, there's, a, there's a name that's given to this particular uh, theological way of looking at things. It's called replacement theology, that the church replaces Israel. And so every promise it made to Israel now transfers to the church. And so everything here in Revelation that refers to Israel is really referring to the church. Uh, it's called replacement theology. And um, uh, the Presbyterian Church, for example, believes in replacement 
different theology. Um, and I grew up in the Presbyterian Church. Uh, my father's an elder in the Presbyterian Church. Uh, my grandfather was an elder in the Presbyterian Church. My great-grandfather was an elder in the Presbyterian Church. Um, so uh, I, I, I know a little bit about this replacement uh, theology. So um, the so if you go back to the, the major groups of, of Christians who believe in replacement theology, um, they're from the Reformed tradition, and they're um, not all, but primarily amillennialists. Okay. Um, in, in other words, they they really believe that all this stuff in Revelation is talking about 70 A.D. I see. Um, and so you have to put that in context. The whole the whole way of looking at things is is from a particular. It's a whole system of eschatology. Yes, and so yes, that's the uh, that's the view that we take, that I take, that uh, that absolutely most Jews today couldn't tell you what tribe they belong to. If you if you have a Jewish friend, they can't tell you, well, I'm from the tribe of, tribe of Gad, for example. Uh, they don't know that, but God does. Yeah, it's God made all these... So the, the reason why I can't get to uh, replacement theology is that there are these promises that were made to Abraham, for example, that were unconditional covenants. And the unconditional covenants included land and... Um, and but the, and and Gentiles were all also already included in the Abrahamic covenant in the the blessings to be given to the all the nations of the earth and uh, so Gentiles are already mentioned there. But there's uh, there's absolute um, uh, unconditional uncon- promises made to the actual descendants of Abraham in those that Abrahamic covenant and. Uh, to say that those are abrogated, I mean, the way they get there is they say that they spiritualize it. They say that they use the passage that, that says that not all that are uh, um, a, descendants of Abraham are truly of Abraham, and if you're uh, if you're a believer, you're a spiritual descendant of Abraham. There's a passage in the New Testament about that, and they take that and they run with it, and they say that well, the church is the spiritual descendants of Abraham. The church and the church alone are the descend now the descendants of Abraham. It's only spiritual, not physical. Uh, that's the way they get there. Um, I don't think that fits, and so I don't believe that's true. Um, but that's how they get there. Um, so we have 144,000. It seems pretty clear to me this is talking about uh, Jewish believers. Yes. Yeah, but they say it's, uh, it's, it's just the church. They don't say it's actually Jews here. Yeah, but he couldn't yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and so, um, yeah, you can get in these discussions with people that believe differently, and, um, and it's, it's worth doing that. I mean, it's, it's fine as long as everybody can be civil about it. As, as long as you're not, uh, you know, as long as you're not, you know, the throbbing vein in the forehead and yelling and screaming and things like that, it's fine to have discussions with other believers about what the scripture says and what the scripture means. Uh, it's good to do that. Um, yeah, so I would encourage you to do that as long as you can be civil uh, about it. Um, yeah. Um, so yes, I don't think it's the church. I think it's actual, actually Jewish Christians. So it's, I mean, it's part of the church. Um, and so they actually cite several New Testament passages that allegedly identify the church as Israel to support that interpretation. But the identification of Israel with the church in those passages is tenuous and disputed. In other words, there's not a clear, there's nothing clear um, that you can point to to say, hey, look, it says that the church is Israel. Um, so I think it's um, I think it's it's a a stretch, um, and I don't think it really fits the rest of Scripture as well. Especially going back to the unconditional promises to Abraham and to David, the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Um, and so I just put a quote from uh, one of the commentaries by Thomas. Uh, Thomas says, There's no clear-cut example of the church being called Israel in the New Testament or even in ancient church writings uh, up to 160 AD. That's the first reference ever made to the church being Israel. Um, so not only the New Testament, but the, f- the first generation of church fathers, none of them said anything about the church being Israel either. And then it popped up in the, in the second century. Um, 
Uh, further, such an attempt becomes even more ridiculous because it necessitates typological interpretation that divides the church into 12 tribes to coincide with their listing of Revelation 7 here. Um, that's a problem, I think. Um, there's no way that the church is divided up into 12 tribes. Um, I mean, which tribe of the church do you belong to? Um, so I, I think that's a, it's a real stretch when trying to fit this particular passage into that system interpretation. Um, you know, it, it's, it's typically spiritualized, but th I think this is a real problem for that interpretation, that the church is divided up into 12 tribes. That, that doesn't fit with any description of the church uh, that I know of. Uh, and of course the term Israel must be interpreted in accordance with its normal Old and New Testament usage as a reference unless there's a compelling reason not to. Uh, but the, the rest of the Old and the New Testament when it's referring to Israel seems to be referring to actual you know, people of Abra uh, descendants of Abraham and a particular group of people. Um, and so, and there's no compelling reason not to do that here in my view. Um, and there's no exegetical reason not to interpret the numbers as literal. Uh, there is uh, quite a movement by those who believe that in replacement theology to spiritualize these numbers as well and just say, well, 144,000, that just means a really big number. Um, because nobody believes that the church is only 144,000 people. So they have to spiritualize that as well. Um, and so uh, then we go back to this, the actual description um, of these 12 tribes. And so um, there's 12,000 from each tribe, and they list 12 tribes there. Uh, but, uh, so there's 12,000 sealed, um, and it speaks of God's elective purpose. He's got a purpose. We know he's, uh, the doctrine of election says that he, before the foundation of the world, chose who he would save, and, and, and he does that over and over again, and this demonstrates it once again, in a particular circumstance, he's chosen a particular 12,000, uh, a group of people, and 12 different groups of 12,000, he has chosen out for his purposes. Uh, random human choice would not come up with such an even division. Uh, it, it would be ridiculous to assume that a random choice would come up with exactly 12,000 from each of these 12 groups. Um, tribal records, of course, were lost uh, to the Jews when uh, Rome was sacked by uh, uh, Jerusalem was sacked by Rome in AD 70. Uh, but God knows who belongs to each tribe. We, we talked about this before. Um, all the records, the Jews have no records of which tribe they belong to anymore. Uh, but God can keep that sort of thing. Uh, can understand that sort of thing. Um, and of course, this passage, uh, uh, of course, um, would. Um, um, would contradict this idea that ten tribes were lost. Uh, in fact, they're never lost. Uh, instead, representatives from the ten tribes uh, probably came south, uh, filtered south, and intermingled with the two southern tribes, um, and thus were preserved. Also, we have the specific names here raising a number of questions. I don't know if you noticed this particular set of names here, uh, but there's some missing for example. Um, first of all, there's, there's no standard way of listing the 12 tribes. Uh, there are at least 19 different ways of listing them in the Old Testament. And none of them agree with the list given here. Um, so in the Old Testament lists, sometimes they're in the order of birth. Genesis 29 to 35 typically list them in the order that they were born. Um, at other times, it, uh, it's the order of Jacob's blessing them in Genesis 49. He, he blessed them in a different order than they were born. Uh, in Numbers 2, they're listed in the order of encampment. Um, in Numbers 26, they're listed in order of census before the invasion of Canaan. Uh, in Deuteronomy 27, they're uh, listed in a different order for the blessings and the cursings. Um, in Deuteronomy 33, they're listed in a different order for Moses' blessing. In Numbers chapter 1, they're in the order of the princes. In Joshua chapter 13, they're in the orderance of the inheritance. Um, in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, they're listed in order by the wives and concubines, which is different in the, than the order that they were born. Um, and in Ezekiel chapter 48, they're listed in the order of the gates of the city. 
And so they're listed in different orders and different, uh, and actually different um, actual names in some of these lists in the Old Testament. Um, and so here we have a, a particular list of, of 12 tribes. And it's not unusual that the lists are a little bit different for different purposes. Uh, and so I'd like to talk about that. First of all, uh, Reuben is the firstborn, but Judah is listed first. So why would Judah be listed first here in this particular list? Because that's Jesus' tribe, right? And so Jesus is the focus. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the tribe that produced the Messiah comes first in this list. Um, and so I think that's, it's, um, it's not a really mystery why that particular Judah comes first. Uh, also, we saw, of course, Reuben forfeited his birthright as punishment for his sexual misconduct with his father's concubine, First Chronicles chapter 5. Uh, the, the description of that is in the book of Genesis, but, uh, but it's um, rehashed in First Chronicles chapter 5 that Reuben has lost his position as the birthright of the firstborn because of his misconduct. Um, also notice that Dan is missing. One of the sons is not mentioned at all here. So Dan is one of the tribes of, of, of Israel, one of the sons of Israel, one of the tribes not mentioned in this list of 12. I don't know if you noticed that, but he's left out um, in, in favor of the uh, tribe of Levi. So the tribe of Levi is left out in some lists because Levi didn't get a particular land. They got cities, uh, cities within each of the uh, land areas, but not a land of their own because the Lord himself was their portion. Uh, but Levi is listed here. Because this is not a land, this is a particular uh, evangelistic um, purpose, uh, these 12,000. So Levi's there, but Dan's not. Um, And probably due to uh, the tribe's penchant for idolatry. Deuteronomy chapter 29, Dan was the leader's of the idolaters in Israel, uh, worse than the rest of the nation. We see that in Deuteronomy 29. We see it in Judges chapter 18 and Amos chapter 8. Uh, Dan was the leader of the idolaters, and he's left out here of this particular purpose of providing evangelists during the Great Tribulation. Dan is not included as being sealed and protected as a particular evangelistic outreach group in the tribulation. Dan's not part of that. Um, Dan will share in the millennial blessings. Ezekiel chapter 48 lists Dan. So uh, the tribe, uh, it it's will be there in the millennial kingdom. It will be in the restoration of Israel. But it's not, it doesn't get to participate in this particular, um, um, this duty and protection in the tribulation. Um, And so God decided that Dan's going to be left out of this particular uh, purpose of his. And he has the right to do that, and he has done that uh, here in this list. Uh, The name of Ephraim is also uh, omitted in in favor of the father Joseph. So uh, the the tribes of, sometimes listed as the half-tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim, the the two sons of Joseph, um, each one of them got a portion amongst the distribution of land, Manasseh and Ephraim. Uh, But in this list, we have... Um, Ephraim left out and Joseph included. So Joseph still gets a double portion. He gets Joseph and he gets Manasseh, but Ephraim is left out. Um, And Ephraim is um, defected from the ruling house of Judah, Isaiah chapter 7. Ephraim, like Dan, was consumed with idolatry, Hosea chapter 4. And so Manasseh is included because he's a faithful son of Joseph. Joseph still gets a double portion, but Ephraim is left out. And so Ephraim does not get to participate in this evangelistic part of and the protection in the Great Tribulation. Um, for God's own purposes, he's done that. So there's a, this is a, um, there's a specific list here, and there's some interesting uh, little details, little nuggets of who's included in this particular uh, list and this particular um, uh, duty that God has given to uh, the descendants of Israel and who's left out and why are they left out and of course we can only 
I'm, this is a, a course and a, a guess, uh, a speculation here. Yes. So Joseph gets twelve thousand. So what does that mean? Uh, yeah. So so who who are, who are these descendants of Joseph that are included? Um, so it seems that that would include some descendants of Ephraim because we've already got the descendants of Manasseh included as a separate twelve thousand. Um, and so in reality. Yeah, you probably got some descendants of, uh, of Ephraim in there, but they're not named, and they're not named, and we can only speculate because they defected from uh, Judah, and they were engaged in idolatry, so they don't get named. But yes, so the descendants of Joseph have to be traced through Ephraim and, and Manasseh, and we've already got Ephraim accounted for. So yeah, that's a good, uh, a good observation. Uh, that we probably do end up having some descendants of Ephraim involved there. Um, but named as descendants of Joseph here. Yeah, <clears throat> good point. Any other questions or comments? Um, so I love when stuff like this comes out. I mean, it's really good to think through these things. Um, I mean, last week we had a really good uh, question um, from Tegan about well, who, how did how did we get these uh, um, these tribulation saints when the whole church was raptured? So who was preaching to them? Um, that, that was a good way. We should think through those sort of things um, uh, and think through something like this too. Okay, um, so this passage uh, reinforces the biblical truth that God is not through with the nation of Israel. So we, we really see that. If you read through Romans 9 through 11, you, you can see that. You can see that um, in Paul's writings, you've got this idea that, um, that, yes, the Gentile believers in Christ are spiritual descendants of, of Abraham, but it's the part of the promise that talks about uh, Abraham's descendant, seed, singular, Christ, uh, pro providing a uh, blessing to all the nations, to the Gentiles. Um, but Romans 9 through 11 makes clear that there's also uh, the fact that God is not done with the actual physical descendants of Abraham. It's clear that Paul's talking about that in Romans 9 through 11. And so we see that come up again, and it's consistent with what we see in the rest of Scripture, particularly Romans 9 through chapter 9 through 11. Um, and so Israel, we have this history from, uh, from the Old Testament that Israel was God's people, God's chosen people, and there was a purpose that God had behind that. And that was everybody was supposed to be able to come and see this people who were different. This people of God who worshiped God were different from the surrounding people. Um, and so God had all these requirements on Israel to behave in a certain way so that people would see that God's people were different from everybody else. And, of course, they failed spectacularly. Um, and they were punished for failing spectacularly. Um, with uh, the, you know the the northern nation of Israel taken away in 722 to captivity by Assyria, and the, the the southern nation of Judah taken away by Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C., uh, they were punished. Uh, God told them He would punish them if they misbehaved, and He punished them just like He said He would. Um, but He's He's got a plan to give them. Um, uh, another chance to to uh, to be his witnesses. Um, in other words, he's not done with the nation of Israel. Um, so they failed in their mission to witness in the Old Testament. Uh, but according to the Book of Revelation, they will not fail here. Um, these evangelists will be very successful uh, during the tribulation period. Um, these these particular evangelists that were called out from the tribes of Israel by God to do a particular mission of evangelism during this great tribulation, and they will be successful. Uh, from the Jewish people will come the greatest missionary force the world has ever known. The result of their effort will be a redeemed Israel as promised by God and innumerable redeemed Gentiles. Um, and so that's the, the future of 
the, the descendants of Abraham in accordance with and in keeping with the unconditional covenant that God made with Abraham. Um, that, that, that God is faithful to his promises. And when he makes an unconditional promise like that, uh, there's nothing that can stop him from fulfilling that promise. And so we get here in Revelation some details about how he's going to work that out. Yes, as long as you're still alive, uh, you, you have a chance. And of course, all of this is under the umbrella of God's uh, sovereign election. And so um, it's clear that God has sovereignly elected people um, that will be saved during the tribulation. Even though they've been unbelievers up to that point, there will be people that are saved out of the great tribulation. Um, you know, we see that we de that's definitely what uh, the book of Revelation teaches. There will be people saved during the, the revelation. Now, when it comes to the very end, when, when there are people that are still alive, when it comes to the great white throne judgment, um, they get tossed into the lake of fire. Um, yeah, so people that are still alive at the time of the great white throne judgment and have not believed, they get tossed into the lake of fire with Satan and his angels and death and Hades, and they all get tossed into the lake of fire. Yeah, so one of the, one of the distinctions that I made, try to make last time was um, there are a lot of people that are sitting in pews that are not saved, and there are a lot of people that are preaching in pulpits that are not saved. And uh, I, I, so I, I, I gave the example, I'm currently reading this book about famous um, 1700 preachers in England from the 1700s, you know, George Whitfield and John Wesley and uh, a, a lot of others. And at least, and it has two, of, it, it goes through the lives of eight of these really just pillars of the church, just really famous preachers, uh, William Romaine and a couple of others. And two of the eight, two of the eight fully admit that they were preachers in churches, that they had their own churches, congregations, they were the senior pastor, and they were not saved. They became saved sometime after they became the, the pastor of a church. And so if we have a historical witness of people that say, hey, I was a pastor of a church and I wasn't saved, um, then that's definitely something that's not unusual. Um, and so when the rapture comes, there will still be churches left here. Um, not the true church, the visible church. So, so there's, a, uh, there's a distinction that you, sometimes you will hear in technical literature of uh, the true church and the visible church. The visible church is a much larger organization than the true church. Um, and so the visible church is church buildings all over the world with people that go on Sunday and worship. But it's not, that's not necessarily, not necessarily everything in the visible church is actually the true church. The true church will be raptured, and there will still be people meeting on Sundays after that. Yeah, so the, the true church is raptured. It's gone. Um, and so what, what term is used for believers, um, you know, there's, my guess is that there's still going to be people that are calling themselves churches that, that are meeting. Uh, but it's not the true church. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, but people will be saved. I mean, that's the clear teaching here in Revelation that during this seven years, after the church is raptured out, there will be people that will be saved, there will be people that will be martyred for their faith. So there will be people saved and then killed for their faith during this seven-year period. Yes. Yes, so Israel will be redeemed, and so uh, we're going to talk about that event too. Uh, temple worship restored, uh, you know, all kinds of things that are in biblical prophecy about the physical nation of Israel um, occurring during the, the eschatological times. Yes. And we, we haven't got to, but we will get to the two witnesses. We got these 144,000 evangelists. We've got an angel flying through the sky in chapter 14 uh, pro proclaiming the gospel. Uh, so there's the, God's giving, God's a merciful God. 
And he's giving people opportunity after opportunity after opportunity um, to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. That's right. And so that's the, the only thing, the only conclusion I can make about, well, how do people get saved after the church is raptured out? Well, you have unbelievers who are actually preaching the word, and that word doesn't return void. It, because it's the power of the word. Uh, the, the word of God is the power, uh, uh, the power of life unto salvation, um, and so it's not, um, it's not my voice and it's not my mind. It's the word of God that has power. If I'm teaching or if I'm preaching, um, and and I start to think that it's me. Uh, that's a dangerous place to be. I, you know, I I'm a fallen, uh, f- f- uh, you know, I'm a flawed human being, and I feel the weight of that all the time. Um, and I I I teach, and but just believe me, it's the word of God that has the power. It's not not my voice and not my mind, and it's not it's never. The, the voice and the mind of the preacher that is the power uh, from the pulpit. It's always the Word of God. Yeah, absolutely right. And so that, that's a, an excellent example that Paul was saying, you know, these others are preaching out of envy and jealousy and uh, all these, again, greed. Um, and so I think that's a good example of people that are probably not saved. They're preaching the Word of God and and Paul's grateful that they're preaching the Word of God because it's the Word of God that has the power and not these ridiculous individuals. Yeah, yeah. so he was in a vision, but he was physically on Patmos still. Uh, yeah, even though he's in a vision, that's where he was. He was actually in Patmos. Um, and so, and, and the East also has, of course, symbolic. There's, there's lots of uh, different scriptures that talk about the East, uh, things coming from the East, the Magi coming from the East. You, you have uh, a lot of references to the East um, in scriptures. And so this is another one. But I think it's interesting that from a physical standpoint, John was actually in Patmos, and to the east was Jerusalem, and that's where the angel is coming from. Yeah, so that's a good question. So the fact that they didn't get raptured, and you see that lots of people did. So I think it should be, it will be obvious that there's lots of people missing <laughs> after the rapture. And then people that are in churches and look around, and they're still there when lots of others are not, um, Will that prompt soul searching among those folks? Uh, my guess is that at least among some, it will. Uh, it, it will prompt some soul searching. Uh, the rapture has occurred. Lots of churches are empty, but I'm still here. What does that, what does that mean about me? Uh, yeah. So I, I think that probably will prompt some some kind of soul searching like that uh, among those that remain after the rapture. All right, we've uh, we've run out of time. Let me uh, let me close us with a word of prayer, dear Heavenly Father. We thank you for our time together around your Word. What a precious thing it is to to study your Word with uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. And your Word is powerful, Lord. We thank you for that. And I, I am so grateful that uh, that the. Uh, the power resides there and, and not in me. I know uh, that I have no power uh, apart from Christ. Uh, but uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because uh, it's not me. Uh, it's in fact Christ who's doing these things. And, uh, and we, th- we, we ask, Lord, that, uh, that you would give each and every one of us this attitude that, uh, that we serve Christ, that for for us to live is Christ, uh, and that we would be ambassadors for Christ to those around us. We we all, Lord, have unbelieving family members and neighbors and co-workers and and friends, and uh, we pray, Lord, that uh, uh, that we would use the power of your word uh, to reach those people. We thank you for the opportunity that we have now to uh, worship you together in, in, in corporate worship. And we pray that the, the worship that we offer will be acceptable in your sight. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.